Well, uh, today uh, we are going to go into a time of teaching in just a minute, but I just want to show you a few slides if you came in later just of, of yesterday's All Serve. Wasn't it an amazing day? What a fantastic day. So we've got a couple slides coming up here on the screen just to give you a, a taste of this. Here's uh, one of our groups serving in one of the, the trailer parks that we go to, a mobile home park. So here's got a guy, uh, you know, doing, yeah, I was going to do that job, but I didn't quite, you know, uh, not the artistic ability. George, here's out here serving. George C. <laughs> We've got uh, people here at Rocky Peak packing food for children's hunger fun. Uh, here we've got some, a window washing crew going on. Here's more of our window washing crew going on. Still watching windows. Uh, yeah, this is, this is actually part of uh, the team I was on out at, uh, in Simi Valley at Sarah's, Sarah's house, a, a place taking care of... Um, Moms are, are pregnant and their children, here we got some uh, sorting going out. Probably for the new, there's a new thrift store opening up in Simi Valley. I'm guessing that's what that's for. But anyway, just to sense, we, we were out over 30 different places, uh, 12, over 1,200 people serving this year. And, and so that's our biggest number since, uh, since COVID, you know, uh, we're, we're kind of coming back into speed. And so it's so good. So thank, thank you so much for you know, to setting aside your time, serving in this way, and uh, making an impact for, for the kingdom. And uh, so anyway, we're going to go into our time of teaching right now. If you haven't done so already, inside our program is a green and white message note sheet. You want to take that out. We use it every week. For those of you who are joining us online, up there on the top of your browser, you'll see whatever, whatever format you're using, there's a place you can download uh, the note sheet for that. So if you guys are ready to go, I'm ready to jump in. You guys ready to go? Okay, let's pray. Oh, Lord, we're just so thankful to be here on this beautiful morning and to be coming before you as a church, just acknowledging, Lord, that you are our leader, you are our king, that we come here today to receive our marching orders. It's what we do every week. We, we come to worship you. We come to hear your voice. We come to, to be disciples, to, to learn what it is to follow you and do life as you would have us do it, like we're going to be learning today. And so we pray that today, Lord, that you would be our teacher. We just acknowledge that without the work of your Holy Spirit in our life, that these words remain like dead words on a page, but when your Holy Spirit breathes, uh, breathes in them as he originally breathed them into being, that they, they become spirit and life to us. So we pray that today you would do that in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Well, our story starts today in the spring of the year, and uh, it's, it's a beautiful day. The sun is out and shining. Um, the hills are green from recent rainfall. Wildflowers are popping up over the landscape. And today, they're, they're traveling with great anticipation. They're not really sure exactly what to expect, uh, and the reality is, is that the one thing they know that is if this day will be anything like the recent weeks, that it'll be different than they expect. The last few weeks have been life-changing for them. It's been a, a roller coaster of emotions. Uh, they, they've gone from the depths of despair to the heights of elation. Um, and, and so it's left them with such an anticipation for the future, but but honestly also some fear, some trepidation, not knowing exactly what the future will hold. But this day, as we watch them traveling along, as they round the bend in the road, there ahead in the distance, they see the mountain 
This is their destination. This is where they've been called. What that will happen when they arrive, they're not sure. But the mountain looms large, not only in their sight, but in their hearts. Well, today, we are wrapping up this series that we've been in the last, this is week 10 of this series, that's called Supernatural, Discovering Your True Identity. And if you're brand new, a special welcome to you. Kind of the, the heart of this series, kind of the core concept of this series that I've shared every week is that according to Jesus, according to the New Testament, the apostles, that, that when a man or woman comes to Jesus, something happens to us. Um, it's not just like an intellectual change of mind. Something actually happens to us. The way I've described it every week is that it's, it's something that's very deep, it's something that's powerful. It's something incredibly profound. It's something that's truly supernatural that changes us at the core forever. And with this change comes a, a whole new sense of identity. Uh, it, come, it, it brings with it a new perspective on life, a new power to live a new life, a new, uh, a new priorities. It brings a uh, new purpose. It comes with a new calling. It, it, it enlists us in a new community. As we learned er, uh, earlier in the series that we enter into this new level of spiritual warfare against a new enemy. There's a new worldview we talked about last week. Ultimately, there's a new destiny. What we're going to see today is the moment we come to Jesus, we cross over that line, there's a new assignment as well. And so that's our, our topic today as we wrap up this series. And so there in your note sheet, you have a section that's called Supernatural, the Summit. And if you have your Bibles, you have your apps, I'd like you to open up and turn with me to Matthew 28. Now, as you're turning there, let me set the stage, set the scene. The Gospel of Matthew has 28 chapters. So this is the final chapter that we're going to be looking at today. And this chapter starts with Matthew's account of the resurrection of Jesus. Now, it's very interesting. If you were to look at the four Gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and compare the resurrection account and then compare what happens afterwards, that what you'd see is that they, each of them includes different key events that happen in this 40-day period of time between Resurrection Sunday and Ascension, where, where Jesus returns to the Father 40 days later. And in Matthew's Gospel, he starts chapter 28 with the account of the resurrection, but one of the things that Jesus tells the women that he meets that Sunday morning that were his disciples, he says, go and tell my brothers that I'll meet them in Galilee, back in the north of the country where they're all from. And so, um, so Matthew kind of skips over the early weeks. We, we know that, like from John's gospel, we know from Luke's gospel, that, that on that very first Sunday, Jesus is going to appear to the disciples, that he is going to teach them in the upper room. The next week, we know a week later from John's gospel, he's going to come back and he's going to uh, speak to Thomas, if you remember there. And so they're, they're in Jerusalem. So we know that, that there's other things that happen uh, in these first couple of weeks, but Matthew's going to skip over that and he's going to skip to this special summit meeting that Jesus calls his disciples to that happens not in the south in Jerusalem, happens in the north back in Galilee. Now, this takes, we're not sure exactly when this meeting takes place, except that it's sometime between two weeks after the resurrection and before the final ascension, it's going to happen back outside of Jerusalem in the little town of Bethany. So sometimes in that, in that 14 to 40 day window, this event's going to happen. 
And, and so this takes us back to the story we started the day with about these these men, that they're, they're traveling, it's springtime, it's in Galilee, I'm looking forward to that. We'll be going back next week to Israel next, uh, next Sunday, and, uh, and so uh, in the evening. And so um, I love this time in Israel, in springtime. You know, the, the hills are turning green, the wildflowers are going crazy. Um, and so I can picture this, and so they're, they're traveling towards this mountain that's unspecified. We don't know the name of the mountain exactly where, um, and I'm sure that these men are traveling with, with high anticipation. I mean, they've been on this roller coaster of emotions the last couple of weeks that they, you know, it was you know, recently Jesus has been executed, right? And then he's going to come back. And so it's been the lowest of lows to the highest of highs. And yet there's got to be some fear and trepidation for the future because uh, if they've learned anything the last few weeks is that the future is going to be very different than what they thought it was going to be. And so as they, they round the bend and you can pick Picture them looking to this mountain where Jesus said, go to the mountain. It always kind of reminds me of Lord of the Rings or something. You know, what's going to happen on the mountain? And so they don't know what's going to happen on the mountain. They just know they're supposed to go to the mountain and he will meet them there. And so, so that's how this scene opens up for us as we look at this famous passage in Matthew 28. And so this is how Matthew chooses to close his gospel. He says in verse 16, the 11 disciples, so remember we're down one because Judas has committed suicide right after uh, he betrayed Jesus. So the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. Now, we don't really know if they're the only 11 there or if there are other disciples there, and you'll see why I say that in just a minute, but we know from 1 Corinthians 15 that at least on one occasion that Jesus appeared to more than 500 of his disciples at a single time, but we don't know exactly when that could be this time, could be another, we don't really know, um, but we don't really know if it's just the 11 here or other disciples. And the reason I say that is if you look at verse 17, so they go to this mountain, and when they saw him, they worshiped him, but somewhat. Doubt. Okay, so some doubted. So the question is, who are the some, and what do you mean that they doubted? And, uh, you know, on the surface, it would seem this is probably not some of the 11 disciples, because we know from John's gospel and Luke's, they've, they've already seen Jesus at least two times. They've had dinner with him, you know, Thomas, see my hand. So it doesn't make sense that they would be doubting, which is why some scholars believe, oh, there must be some other disciples there. On top of that, this word for doubt, it, it's, it's not a bad translation, but it also can be translated that the, the, of being sort of uncertain of how to respond, um, that you're, you're kind of, uh, you're a little bit confused. And so that could make sense too, because uh, uh, when Jesus, you know, Jesus has now been resurrected, notice that the disciples begin to worship him. And we see this uh, that we see this in other gospels as well, is that once Jesus rose from the dead, the, the disciples are like, oh, there's more to this guy than meets the eye, and, and they begin to go into a worshiping posture, which remember, if you're a Jew, there's only one that you worship, right? That's the core to being. So, so this says a lot about who they're recognizing, but there may have been others there that are like, eh, is that really him? Remember how the first disciples responded in the upper room? Is it, is it a ghost? And so if there were others there, 
there, that would make sense. They're like, ah, uh, and it's just, well, they're worshiping, is that appropriate? Anyway, so he throws in this little tidbit. But now we come to what the, this kind of, this very famous passage. And if you've been a Christian for a while, you may know this, but what this, this passage we're about to read is it historically we've been called it the Great Commission. I call it our assignment. But anyway, so Jesus is there, right? So there's, we don't know if it's just the 11 or others, but either way, he begins to give them this assignment. So he says, Jesus came to them and he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now we often gloss over that, but this is a huge statement that we'll unpack more later. But what he's saying is, as a result of my Life, my death, and resurrection, I am now king of the cosmos. Like, I have all authority in heaven and earth, in the created universe, and I'm now in charge. And it's important that they understand that because he's about to issue, as the king, he's about to issue a command. And it's important we understand who's issuing the command. And so he goes on and he says, so therefore, because I'm in charge of the universe, go and make what? Disciples. So would you underline that? We're going to come back later and talk about what does it mean to be a disciple? Because it's very important. If we're going to obey this command, it's important we know what a disciple is. So he says, go and make disciples of all nations. And he says, so when they come to faith in me, you're going to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So notice, it doesn't say in the names of, because there's only one God. But, so we're gonna, we're gonna baptize them in the name of the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then he says, and then we're also, this is what, what you do when you make disciples. You don't just baptize them, then you teach them to what? Obey, Obey right? And we're going to obey most of the things that I've commanded you, right? Oh, yeah, that's that heresy version. I'm reading again. Yeah. <clears throat> we're going to teach him to obey everything. Uh, not my favorite things. Uh, not the things that come most naturally to me. Um, but everything I have commanded. So Jesus has been teaching them for three years how to be a disciple. Now he's saying, now it's your turn to teach the new disciples everything I've taught you. And then he ends with this great promise. And, and surely, he says, I, I know it's not gonna look this way. It's gonna look like I'm out of here. But he said, the reality is that I will always be with you every step of the way. In fact, that I think is an important part of this 40 days of him kind of coming and going and appearing and knowing what they said. When he's helping them to understand that though he's physically not with them, he's spiritually always with them. He knows exactly what's going on. And over that 40 days, they kind of get used to that. And he's not, we can't see him, but he knows what we're talking about. We're not here, like he's with us. And he says, I'll be with you to the very end of the age. And when I come back, right? So, so that's the passage. Now, what I want to do today is I want to highlight three important truths, principles that, that, that Jesus wants us to understand about who he is, uh, what his vision and calling for us as we live this supernatural life, as we wrap up this series, what, what it means to be a follower of his, 
uh, how to live out this supernatural calling that he's given to us. So there in your note sheet, you have a section called Supernatural, the New Assignment. So let's jump in. So, so the first thing that Jesus wants us to understand is that Jesus is Lord. Now, let's talk about that phrase for just a second. That um, if you've been a long-time Christian, even if you're not yet a believer, chances are that you've heard this statement that Jesus is Lord, right? And I think often we become so familiar with it, and it's, it's really not the language we use in our culture uh, to, to talk about authority. So for us, it often becomes a religious statement, Jesus is Lord. We put it on our bumper stickers in the old days, or, or you put it on a wall plaque or something. And so we see it as sort of a spiritual statement, a religious statement. But what I want you to catch is that uh, in the first century, this is not a religious statement as much as it's a political statement. It's a theological, political statement because in the Roman Empire, who was Lord? Yeah, Caesar is Lord. In fact, later on in history, uh, as, as people begin to worship Caesar as a god, as temples are put to his name, this is why Christians will be put to death. Because they, they will be, everyone in the empire is going to be required to come into the temple of Caesar to burn some incense to Caesar as a god and to make the statement, Caesar is Lord. And Christians say, well, no, no, he's not Lord. Uh, there's an ultimate authority in the world ruling over. And so Caesar is not Lord. He's, he's the emperor, but he rules under Jesus' authority. Caesar's not Lord. Jesus is Lord. And so this is not the language Jesus uses here in Matthew 28, but it's the, the, the concept that he's teaching. If you look there on your note sheet, the second verse, this is what he means by all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And I think often in the past, even as believers, even if we're familiar with this famous passage, the Great Commission, we kind of blow, blow by this as this sort of like introductory flowery language. You know, we focus in and go and make disciples. But what Jesus is clearly saying is that by virtue of my life, my death, and resurrection, I have now been crowned as the God-man, the, the, the human being who is fully man and fully God. I'm the one that's over the created universe, that I'm in charge. And as a result, because I'm Lord, this is, this is my command. And so he, want, he starts off this, this great commission by making sure we understand who he is. Uh, it's interesting because scholars tell us that, that in the early church, this was very likely the, most, the first creed of the Christian church. This is what Christians would say when they'd be baptized, that Jesus is Lord. He's the king of creation. And so this helps us to understand what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian means to bow the knee to our true king. That he and he alone is the ultimate authority over my life. That he rules over all the governments of the world. That he is the ultimate. And as a follower of Jesus, I bow the knee to him as my ultimate authority in life. 
And so there on your note sheet, you see an example of this from Romans 10, where the apostle Paul says, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so this is where Jesus starts, uh, starts this, this charge, this assignment that he's given you as followers, that he wants to make sure that we understand now that as a result of his resurrect, death and resurrection, he has now been elevated at the right hand of God, that Jesus is now Lord over creation. Number two. So this leads to the question then, so, so as our king, as our Lord, what is his assignment? As we live this supernatural life, we've been talking about this whole series, and so it goes like this, that our assignment is to make disciples. Now, we need to talk about this word disciple, because it's a very important word. And, and sometimes in Christian circles, uh, and as I was sharing this last night, there seemed to be a lot of, uh-huh, yes, so I, we'll see how you do, but it seems like in, um, <laughs> no, no, not that you don't get it, just what your life experience has been. Uh, yeah, yeah, just ignore him, Neil Johnson. Anyway, um, we just have this relationship that goes. So, um, so uh, <laughs> talk to the hand, no. Um, <laughs> yeah, heckler. Yeah, sorry. No, they're some of my best friends, just in case you're wondering. So, uh, uh, so yeah, in the history, at least in my lifetime, I've seen this often in Christian circles that we've misunderstood what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Often it's been presented almost like this. There's sort of two kinds of Christians. There's sort of the, the average run-of-the-mill everyday Christian it kind of uh, obeys Jesus sometimes, not other times, you know, not that close. And then there are the super Christians, and they are the disciples, right? And they're, they're the people that take Jesus seriously, and they obey him, and uh, they, they're, they're, they're all in, right? And so when you become a Christian, you can kind of choose which one you want to be. You can kind of choose to be just the eh, Christian, or you could be the disciple, and so I don't know if you've come across that at all in your life, but what I want you to catch today is that this is not the case. That in the New Testament, the word for disciple, catch this, is the most common way to talk about being a follower of Jesus. In fact, this word is used, catch this, over 250 times in the four Gospels and in the book of Acts to describe being a follower of Jesus. So what does it mean to be a disciple? We'll highlight a couple things. First of all, this is not a necessarily a religious word. That there were many different kinds of disciples in the first century. Uh, for example, even in the Gospels, even in Israel, uh, that we're told that, that we're often referred to like the disciples of John the Baptist. So just like Jesus had his disciples, John the Baptist had his disciples. Uh, there were disciples of the Pharisees, this religious party. There were, catch this, there were disciples of the Herodians which were the supporters of King Herod. So to be a disciple simply means that you've come under the leadership of a particular uh, rabbi, a particular 
teacher, uh, a particular party, and that you are learning from these leaders or how to do life like they do life. So the one thing that, that is different between like a disciple today and we would say a student is like in our education, you can go and be a student and learn concepts but not really live like the professor at all. Like lifestyle and concepts are different, but disciples were not that way. A disciple, you come under someone's leadership to learn from them how to do life like they do life. So Jesus actually talks about this, and there's a passage there in your note sheet in Luke chapter six, and this is, Jesus is helping us to understand what it means to be a disciple. So he says, the student, now here's the thing, the word for student here is the normal Greek word for disciple, all right? So the, the, remember I said the word disciple is used over 250 times, this is that word. We're not gonna go into great depth, but it's a Greek word, mathetes, disciple. And so it's almost always, almost always translated as disciple, but everyone once in a while translators will disciple, you know, translate some of the way. Here they choose to do it. But, but in the Greek it says, so the disciple is not above the teacher like the rabbi. In other words, this is the way disciples and their, I mean rabbis and their, their followers work, is that the, the disciple is not smarter, not wiser, not more mature than the teacher. If, if he were, then the roles would be reversed, and the rabbi would be the follower of the student. So, so we understand that. He says he's not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully what? I'm trying to underline that word. So this word, again, we're not going to go in the Greek, but this word in the Greek has to do with um, fully uh, repaired, fully renewed. It has the idea, like, remember when the disciples were sitting on their boats mending the nets when Jesus called them? That's the same word. And so Jesus says that the, the disciple is not above the teacher or the rabbi, but everyone is fully trained or fully you know, discipled, fully renewed, fully repaired, will be like the teacher. So he's helping us understand what does it mean to be his disciple? It's to come under his leadership as our true king, to follow him, to learn from him, uh, to how to do life the way Jesus would teach us to do life. That's what it means to be a disciple. Now, now that we understand that, let's go back to the Great Commission and see what we're commanded to do. So there on your note sheet, so all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. I'm in charge of the world. Therefore, go and make what? Disciples. So how do you do that? Well, he says, you, first thing, you baptize them. So, of course, he's assuming that you've shared with them the message of his life. His life, his teaching, his death, his resurrection, and they've come to the understanding that they believe he is king of the creation, he is who he claims to be, he died for their sins, so he's, when that happens, you baptize them. So baptism in the early church was the initiation right into the movement of Jesus. This is how you said, I want to be a disciple of Jesus. And he says, uh, so he says, and then this, so the first step, you baptize them, but then the next thing is you teach them to what? Obey. So the second mark of a disciple is there, someone's baptized, they believe in Jesus, but secondly, they've come under the leadership and they're obeying uh, everything he's taught. Now, this is really important if we're gonna understand our assignment. Because sometimes in Christian circles, 
our goal has not been to make disciples. Our goal has been to seek decisions. And so you you want to know this, that many times we'll go to an evangelistic event or we'll share Christ here. And so we'll, we'll say that if you want to become, accept Jesus as your Savior, we're going to raise our hands. We're going to go forward just as I am. Um, we are going to uh, write on a connect card. Right? Now, there's nothing wrong with that as long as we understand that a decision to raise our hand in an emotionally filled concert is not necessarily a true decision to become a disciple of Jesus. And as a result of this, in America, we've got a majority of our population who claims to be Christians, but very few people following Jesus as disciples, which completely misrepresents the message of Jesus to a whole culture. And is one of the reasons we're in this cultural situation where we are. Or if you ask the average person who's not a follower of Jesus, what comes to your mind when you think of a Christian? Chances are that's not gonna say someone who lives life like Jesus, who's learning to obey Jesus, who's learning to do what Jesus taught us to do, a person who loves people, who loves God, a person who serves others sacrificially. Chances are that won't come to mind other things will come to mind. And the reason is, is because often we have sought decisions instead of making disciples. And so to be a disciple means we understand who Jesus is. He's king of the cosmos. And we're coming under his leadership. We're bowing the knee to our, to our king. We're turning from our sin. And we're coming under his leadership. We're learning constantly how to obey him and do everything that he commanded. Now, the, of course, in the early church, they understood this. And I, like, let me give a great example. On, uh, you know, after Jesus ascended into heaven on the 40th day, 10 days later, the Holy Spirit came on the first believers who lived in, or were in Jerusalem. And uh, it was the day of Pentecost. You remember, Peter gets up to preach his first sermon and he really calls out the crowd because remember, less than two months ago, these were many of the people that were saying, crucify him. And, and so he's calling out the crowd and he says, you've made the biggest mistake of your life. Uh, you're Jewish people, but you killed your Messiah. Now imagine if you're a Jew, it's like, that's, like there's nothing worse than crucifying your Messiah. And so as he shares this with them, and he shares the story of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, many of them are cut to the heart, like this is a disaster, what should we do? And so at the end of that message, he says, this is what you need to do. So let's look, let's look at his language. So in Acts chapter two, at the end of his message, he says, speaking to the crowd, he says, therefore let all Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both what? Lord and Messiah. So we, we can't separate Jesus the Lord from Jesus the Savior. He, he's one person. 
to accept Jesus as Savior, you have to accept him as Lord. I mean, it's like he's only one guy. And he's only one person. You can't like accept, I accept this part of who you are, but I don't accept this part of who you are. And so he says, uh, he says, uh, he's made him Lord. He's made him Messiah, the king. And he says, so when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said, well, what should we do? I mean, we're up a creek without a paddle. <laughs> like we just, we killed the Messiah. Like we're going down. There's going to be God's judgment on our life. And so what do we do? And notice what he, what he says. Peter says, well, this is what you need. What's the first thing he says? Repent. Repent, right? And that's what we all need to do to become disciples. To become disciples, we have to repent of being the king of our own life, of being worshiping other gods, putting other things in the play. We have to repent of that and say, hey, I've, I too have been part of this race that's crucified the Messiah I need to turn from my rebellion and come under his leadership. So we need to repent and be baptized, just like Jesus said. He said, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and then you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so when we come to Jesus, right, we step over the line, something happens to us. We receive this new gift of forgiveness. We receive the gift of the Holy Spirit that brings with it his DNA, everything we've talked about in this series. And so, so it's important we understand our assignment, like what does it mean to be a disciple? If we don't understand disciple, we can't carry out our, our, our assignment of making disciples. So I love there what Dallas Willard uh, writes in his book, Renovation of the Heart. This is a great definition of a disciple. He says, disciples of Jesus are those who are with him. Underline that, they're with him. We're doing life with him. And we're learning to be like him. That's what he said. A student who's fully trained will be like his teacher. He says, that is their learning to lead their life, their actual existence, as he would lead their life if he were they. This is what we're learning together in our local gatherings. Men and women, this is why we gather each week here. We, we gather to learn how to obey Jesus. We study what he said, what he taught, what his disciples taught us of how to obey him. This is why we meet in our life groups. It's not just for a good time or something, or just for like we're, we're gathering together to help each other learn how to obey Jesus and to follow everything that he taught us. And so he says, this is what we're learning together in our local gatherings, and, and with those gatherings, a constant part of their life, right, we're the three-legged stool, right, we're meeting here in large, we're meeting in small. He says, with that as being a constant part of their life, they're learning how to walk with Jesus and learn from him in every aspect of their individual life. That's what it means to be a disciple, okay? Now, number three, the third thing that we learn from this passage is that this assignment is a top priority, that for us as followers of Jesus, making disciples is not optional. It goes to the heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. I think this is why Matthew ends his account of the life, the teaching, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. He ends with this great commission. As I pointed out before, this is not the last thing Jesus is going to say. This happens in the Galilee, in the north. He's going to ascend uh, to the Father in the south, at Bethany, right outside Jerusalem. This is not the final thing that happens, but Matthew chooses to end his gospel here because he wants to highlight this is what Jesus told us to do. 
It's very similar. Luke does a similar thing in the opening chapter of the book of Acts, where he says that Jesus was coming and going during these 40 days. And he says on one occasion, his disciples asked him, are you going to restore the kingdom of God to Israel at this point? And he says, that's not really your, part of your job description to know the details of the timing. He says that what you need to know is you need to wait here in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes because he will empower you to be my witnesses. And it's the same thing that both Matthew and Luke are helping us understand. To be a disciple of Jesus means that we make disciples. It's one of our top priorities. This is why in our vision statement here as a church, well, if you look at our vision statement, it's clear it flows out of this whole series, everything we've learned, right? But as we look at our vision statement, what's our vision to unleash a movement of passionate Christ followers, and then we describe a passionate Christ follower by four markers, four characteristics. They're pursuing God as their top priority in life, to know him, to love him, and to please him. This is our new purpose, our new DNA that we come to Jesus. We're going to love others as he has loved us, this new community we've talked about. We're going to serve sacrificially. We talked this week five, the gifts that we receive when we come to the spiritual gifts with our time, our service, our, our our time, our gifts, our resources. And then the fourth and final marker is sharing Christ. That we understand that the moment we came to Jesus, we crossed over that line between death and life, that we become part of his movement and that each of us shares that responsibility together to help make disciples to share the message of Jesus with others who don't yet know him and help them take the next step in their journey to following him. Now, how do we do this? How do we make disciples? Well, first thing I would say is that we have different roles in this, don't we? Different positions on the team. For example, we're not all apostles. We're not all like the apostle Peter. We're not all evangelists like Philip the evangelist in the early church. Uh, we're not all pastors and teachers. We're not like, we have different roles. We, we don't even all have the gift of evangelism. We'll talk about that later. Some of you have the gift. We'll talk about it later. We don't even, but, but here's the thing. They say, well, Michael, how do we make disciples? I'll tell you the, the first step, the step that we often avoid is to be a disciple. The first step to making disciples is to be a disciple, to listen and follow Jesus in our own life in such a way that we are being transformed to become like Jesus. Often when we talk about evangelism, we start by focusing on techniques. But the reality is if we're not living a transformed life, no one wants to hear from us. And so unless we're transformed, unless we're becoming a disciple, unless we're learning how to pursue God as our top treasure in life, we're loving others as he has loved us, we're serving. Like, if, if our lives are not being transformed, who wants to be one of those? One of the things that, you know, this is kind of Dallas Day, but uh, another thing that Dallas shared in that same book, I think it's just, he puts it really, he just, he, he nails it. He says, outreach, there on your note sheet, outreach. And he's talking here about evangelism, okay? Reaching out. Outreach is one essential task of Christ's people. And that's what we're saying. This is a non-negotiable, right? 
But he says, among them, there will always be those especially gifted for evangelism. Now, you don't have to show, show your hand, but let me ask you something. How many of you have the gift of evangelism? Don't show your hands. Uh, it's interesting. One scholar who studied this a lot, his estimate is about 10% of followers have the gift of evangelism. Kind of spiritual gift. I don't know if that's true or not. But what I know is some of you are just really good at this. You're just really good at talking about Jesus in a way that's very natural, uh, very winsome, uh, in a way that is easy to receive from others. It's supernatural. Can I tell you something? I don't have that gift. You might be surprised at that. You know, you're a pastor. Don't you get that in seminary? I'm like, <laughs> I skipped that class. No. Uh, can I tell you something? I have sought that. I have trained in that. I've gone door to door with that. Can I tell you something? When I try to when I try to evangelize in traditional ways, it just drives people further from Jesus. Uh, I've got stories to tell, right? Real life stories, hilarious stories now. Uh, so I, I don't really have that gift. Some of you do have that gift. Last night in the service, Andre Van Comedy was sitting right here in the second row. A lot of you know Andre. Andre has that gift. I mean, I just, I love talking with him. You know, he's a physical therapist. He's, he's got all these clients, and Andre came to Jesus later in life, and he just has this amazing story. I think his story might even be on our website. We did a video on him a few years ago. And, and you know, Andre is just, he's very gifted at this. And it's just very natural, right? For me, it's super unnatural. Right, so I'm just not that, it's not my thing, right? I've tried it many, many times. Right? And so here's what I want to say. If you have that gift, you need to be using that gift because you're like the sales force of the body of Christ, right? You're like you're out there in the front line. You're, you're like our marketing department, you know? It's like, like you are just, you're going to be inviting people to church and sharing Jesus and planting seeds and it's just going to be amazing. You know how you have that gift? Is it actually works, right? <laughs> that people take a step towards Jesus. They take their next step towards Jesus. All right, so, so Dallas says, hey, this is an essential task and among them there will always be those especially gifted for evangelism. Yeah, that's some of us here. Right? He says, catch us, but the most successful work of outreach, of evangelism, would be the work of inreach. And in the context of this book, what he's talking about is being transformed to be like Jesus. And this is what he says, the most successful work of outreach would be the work of inreach that turns people, wherever they are, into lights in a darkened world. And here, men and women, here's the reality. If you love Jesus and you're being transformed and you're, you're just being honest with people, you have genuine relationship, can I tell you something? People are gonna ask, aren't they? They're gonna ask like, they're gonna say things like this. Have you always been religious? Or you just get weird late in life, you know? Um, they're, gonna, they're, gonna, they're gonna say things like when they're in a jam, you're gonna be the person they come to would you, would you pray for me, right? Uh, they're they're going to say things. They're just going to, they're, they're going to throw out little, little like feelers 
Um, they're like, what's this life group you always talk about? And they're gonna act like they don't even care. What's this life group you always talk about? They're like, they really wanna know. Right? This is sort of an opportunity for, for us. You know, so if we're in relationship and we are growing, people are going to ask. Now, if we're not growing, they're not. Because they don't want to be like you anyway. <laughs> like you're the last thing they want to be like. And so if we're not growing, if we're, or if we're not being transformed, then they're not going to. But there's two passages in the New Testament I want to call your attention to talk about sharing Jesus. Uh, the first one there is in 1 Peter 3.15. He says, always be prepared to give a what? An answer. Underline that. An answer implies something. What does it imply? Someone's asking a question, right? So always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that you have. Like, how can you stay positive in the midst of this horrible culture? Like, like how in the midst of COVID are you ha- holding it together? Like, how's that working, you know? And uh, he says, but do this with what? Gentleness and respect. No, don't be a jerk for Jesus. Sometimes we think the more jerky we are, the more bold and filled with the Holy Spirit. No, 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 no. Gentleness, respect. We'll see it again. Look at the next one from the Apostle Paul. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders, like non-believers. And then catch this. Make the what? Make the most of every opportunity. We'll come back to that. Let your conversation be always full of anger and condemnation. <laughs> oh, wait, wait, wait. Wrong Bible, wrong version. <laughs> Let your conversation always be full of what? Grace. Grace. Seasoned with salt. You got something to say. So that you'll know how to what? Yeah. To answer. Do you notice that both of those passages assume if you're following Jesus, people can ask questions, right? And so when they, they do, that we need to be ready. And I think this is so important because for many of us, probably, maybe you're like me, that for many of us that we've often been taught there's sort of one way to do the evangelism, and and that's to share uh, the whole gospel in a quick encounter, perhaps even with a stranger. I mean, it's a plane or it's a stranger at the grocery store, you know, to look for a way to open the conversation and then kind of get Jesus in there. Um, and, and that that's kind of the, the method. And here's what I'd say. If you have the gift of evangelism and that's working, that's a beautiful thing. But here in our culture, I don't think it's the way it normally works. And, and so sometimes we, we felt like the only way to share Jesus is that if they give us, if they just give us a sliver of opening, we back up the gospel dump truck. They say, isn't it a beautiful day? Yes, and God made that. Would you like to know about Jesus? Boom. What I want you to catch is the reality is when you talk to real people who've come to Jesus, that even when they come, like with a quick encounter at the end, as they look back over their lives, they say, well, how did you come to Jesus? They will usually tell you a long story with many interactions, many key points in the journey that may go back to their youth. 
And so what we need to understand is that when we're in relationship with non-believers, whether it's someone in your family, someone in your workplace, in your neighborhood, uh, that, and this is helpful for me, I, we need to think of, think of every person who's a non-believer like on a spectrum. And so I want you to think of a spectrum. On this side of the spectrum is a zero. This side of the spectrum is a 10, right? So a zero would be like a flaming atheist. So hates Christians, hates Christianity, sees Christianity as a source of all problems in the world, a religion is, right? On this side, a 10 is someone who's come to a place, they're ready to give their life to Jesus. They're excited about that. They're just, oh, I'm ready to give my life to Jesus. Here's what I want you to catch. Every person in your life who doesn't yet know Jesus is somewhere on that spectrum. Are you with me on this? They may be a two, they may be a five, they may be eight, but they're a different place. And what we need to be ready to do is make the most of every opportunity. Don't make more of it, but don't make less of it, don't miss it. And to help them take the next step up the scale in their life. Let me just give you an example, a recent example from my own life that uh, as you know that I go to Starbucks pretty much every morning is where I start my day, often very early. And uh, I move around so I don't wear out a particular one, you know. Because uh, I'm there for so long and I'm so many cups of coffee and uh, it's you again. Um, and uh, so, um, so I was at one of my, one of these Starbucks, I call them my Starbucks because at a certain point you get squatters rights, but... Uh, <laughs> That's one of my Starbucks, and uh, there's a man there that I've kind of built a, a little bit of relationship with. Not super deep, but a little bit of relationship. And, and so um, he knows I'm a pastor, which I, I try to keep that undercover as long as possible. But, uh, but they, you know, if, he knows that, and so we, we've talked. And so he's even confided in me once at one point that, you know, he's, he's got one of his kids. He thinks, hey, maybe Sunday school would be good. So they're, they're not, you know, they're not going to church or anything, but it might be good for them to have some, you know, some moral training in their life or something. And so I, I told him, I, you know, when he, when he shared, they said, hey, you know, if you ever want to come to Rocky Peak, I, I would love to have you. I'll roll out the red carpet. I'll meet you personally. I'll walk your child to a classroom. And just, you know, so if you ever want to do that. And so, so, you know, that's the level of relationship we have. We know I'm a believer. Uh, that we're on good, warm terms. Um, and we never had like super deep conversation about Jesus saying, so, so I'm there recently. And uh, I've got my iPad out and where I'm, I'm praying. And you know how I pray with my, my arch over the thing. And so I'm praying over someone here in our church that's going through a particular hard time. And often when I pray over people, I actually write scripture uh, uh, over their life. And I'm praying that scripture over their life. Right? So, so he comes up to me. It's early in the morning. Hardly anyone's there. And he comes up to me. He gives me a fist bump. He says, hey, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I'm just, uh, just praying over someone. You know, that they're going through a hard time. And I'm... I'm just praying some scripture over their life. It's like one of the things I, I love to do. And uh, he said, oh, that's really cool. And then uh, he said, what do you think about Ukraine? What's going on in Ukraine, right? And conversation switches, right? It's just making the most of an opportunity that the one, one option is just to say, oh, I'm just working on some stuff. Um, and honestly, if I didn't know him, that's probably what I would have said because it would have come off as weird without any context. But he knows who I am, he knows I'm a believer, we've talked a little bit about the spiritual life of their family, and so I'm just giving them a window into what Christians are. We, we pray for one another, and we love scripture, and we, we believe God answers prayer, and it's just in very non, 
you know, just a non-threatening way, and he received it super well. All it is is just a seed. It's just a seed. Right? We'll pray for more seeds. We'll pray for more conversations as time goes on. And so, and so, so Paul says, hey, make the most of every opportunity, right? So this leads to an important question then for our life. So there in your note sheet as we wrap up this series, I've got one last question for this series. I'm sure I'll have many more for the next series. But um, here, here's a question. For some of you, this is gonna make total sense. Uh, for others of you, uh, not so much, but I'll explain it. But the question goes like this. Who are your one lives? Who are your one lives? Now, for some of you, you'll be saying, what do you mean by a one life? And so let me explain. So many years ago, we did a whole series, like 10 weeks, on the assignment, on this topic of sharing Christ. And we introduced uh, a concept then called a one life. And a one life is someone, and I want you to listen very carefully to this. This is very important. A one life is someone that God is putting on your heart. Someone that doesn't know Jesus um, and, that you, and, and that you would do two things for that person. Number one is that you would be praying regularly for their salvation. And number two, that you would invest in their life a real relationship. You'd make their relationship a priority. You'd invest in them, just doing life together, a real friendship, an authentic friendship, not just a, I'll be your friend to share Jesus, you know? And then... If you accept Jesus, I'll move on to Meg's friendship, but a real relationship. And in that context of that relationship, you're praying for opportunities that you can make the most of. When they ask questions, you can just help them take the next step, which is sometimes as simple as another conversation down the line. Many times in our culture, one of the most effective ways we can share Christ is inviting people to church. People are way more open to that, you might think, if they trust you. Uh, there was someone, we were talking about a life group this week, and she had been sharing with someone, she's in a sales position, and someone had been pouring out their life, and she said, you know, have you, maybe you would like to come to church. And, and this person said, I, I, I kind of grew up, I had a really bad experience. I said, well, tell me about your experience. And then she told me, she said, well, that's, yeah, that's not the way we do it, you know? What I've found that in our culture, that most people that you meet, that when they hear that you go to church, their image that comes to their mind and what really happens here is very different. And I've seen it time and time again that when people come in and experience something like we do here, that their mind is often blown. And here's the thing. In that confusion of this is not what I expect, this is what happens. If I've been so wrong about what church is, maybe I'm also wrong about what God is. And there's an openness. So many times this is simple. Sometimes it's not that. Sometimes it's, it's like, hey, I'm going to this concert, the Christian concert. Sometimes it may be, uh, it may be like, hey, would you, you know, there's a really good book on, that kind of speaks to that. Would you be interested in that? Sometimes it's like, uh, giving them a Bible. And of course, if you get them a Bible, get them a good one, right? Like, don't give them one of the cheap ones. We have to have a magnifying glance to read it. So it's like, what does this say? It's so small. If I go through the eye of a needle, uh, you know, like, get them a good Bible. 
you know. Um, so the, for different situations, it'll be a different response. We just need to open the Holy Spirit. But the question I have is, is who are your one lives? And if you don't have any one lives, and of course when we say one life, you get more than one. But, but who are your one? And if you don't have any, this is just a really practical way to keep this assignment of Jesus on the front burner of a life because we're regularly praying for someone to come to Jesus and we're watching for opportunities and that just then spreads to all of our life. Right? It's not, if we're just, we're focused here, but it helps us in the way we approach all of life, amen? And so, so as we wrap up this series, here's, here's what I want, how I wanna tie it up is that, that what we've discovered is that when someone comes to Jesus, something happens that we're, we're, we're no longer the same. As Paul says, if anyone's in Christ, they're a new creation. We discover, like we've, we talked about early on, that we've, we've been chosen before time. We've been called in time. We've been forgiven. We've been adopted. We become a full-on son or daughter of the king with all the rights and privileges that come with that. That we're filled with the gift of his spirit to lead us and guide us, empower us to live a new life where each of us gifted spiritually to be able to join Jesus in his mission. We become part of this forever family that will be strengthened by his power for this new spiritual battle that we're in, that our minds can be transformed into a new worldview. There's a new future, a new destiny for us. But in the midst of all that, it's important we remember that we're here for a reason. And one of that reasons, one of the most important reasons is we're here to make disciples. And if we ever forget that, we forgot our birthright. Because this is what Jesus said, and we'll see this in our next series. It starts next week. He said, as the Father has sent me into the world, so I am sending you. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. So Lord, we come today as we wrap up this series just remembering the journey that we've taken, all that we've learned. And we pray that today you would just renew our vision for joining you in your purpose. And you said that you wish that none would perish, but all would be returned in repentance, receive eternal life. We pray that you would empower us to join you in making disciples. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.